thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. In five, four, three, two, the evil has gone. Hello and welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy and I'm joined by all of my co-hosts today. With me is Yogi Paywall, Steve Jeffries, Andy Palmer. And so we're coming to you on a, a solemn day, a solemn week, uh, apart from the continuing coronavirus news that we'll talk about. Uh, we, we all got the the news on uh, April 8th, 2020, that uh, Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign for president. Um, this is, of course, a big bummer, a big uh, big thing we've been talking about since we started uh, this podcast has been the hope and the possibility offered by a Bernie Sanders presidency. So we're going to talk about that, how we're feeling, where we go from here. But uh, first, I guess we will, as usual, kind of update about what's been going on with uh, the coronavirus situation, particularly in uh, New York State. And uh, our resident coronavirus dead numbers guy, Andy Palmer, <laughs> has uh, has your, your, your uh, morning update. Uh, here's Andy with the weather. <laughs> well, uh, today, Sean, we got uh, 799 new deaths in New York State, uh, but we have an update here at Grubstakers. We don't just have uh, New York deaths, actually. Uh, today, I can also add that we have uh, plus 45 new deaths in Connecticut, where Sean is reporting from. Uh, there are 9,784 cases of coronavirus in Connecticut, uh, with 1,003 uh, new cases. It would have been 1,001, but Sean had to take an Uber up to an Airbnb in Connecticut to wait out the... First of all, I will address Andy's slander to me, but I do think it'd be nice if we uh, got the sound effects for the Grubstakers Chopper and uh, we threw it <laughs> here's Andy and the Grubstakers Chopper to give us our coronavirus death update. And then he like looks out the window of the chopper and counts the bodies in the mass grave. <laughs> All right, uh, all right, Sean. It looks like we got uh, we got uh, 1,940 new deaths in the United States uh, on April 8th, and then uh, 1,724 so far on April 9th. Uh, actually, that's the total number. We're hitting. A, looks like a bit of a plateau here on the deaths. Um, it's about the same number every day, and we'll see that until they tell everyone to go back to work in I would say mid-May, and then they're going to spike up again. Yeah, Sean, slander implies Andy saying something false. Uh, nothing yeah. he said is false. <laughs> Slander is oh, well. the Bernie bro narrative, uh, saying Sean went to Connecticut and then didn't post it on social media because he didn't want to get owned, like <laughs> Kath Barbadoro and Talia Lavin. Uh, that's just accurate. Well, all right. Yes, the listeners deserve a response. Yes, after my wife and I tested negative for coronavirus, we took an Uber, not public transit, up to an Airbnb in Connecticut. And I will not be giving the town name because I don't want people on Twitter linking the town name to an outbreak the way they did with <laughs> Talia Lavin going to the Catskills and then an outbreak starting there immediately. <laughs> um, but yes, look, own me. I'm sorry. I'm a piece of shit. Uh, but again, my wife and I did get tests. We are both tested negative. We're both feeling fine. We are sheltered in place for two weeks. Uh, we, uh, I wanted to stay in the apartment, but a one-bedroom apartment in New York 
Uh, you make compromises in a marriage to keep people happy. They want to have a place to walk around while they're sheltering in place. We have not been interacting with anybody. We are in this Airbnb for two weeks. Uh, but yes, oh man. please I'm, own me. I'm really disappointed that I can't do the drops because I just pulled up the YouTube video of... Um, wait, let's see if I can get this in here. So real, real strong. I feel great energy from Sean McCarthy, um, in his Connecticut bunker. He's like, he's like Isaac Newton, uh, running away from the plague so that he could invent calculus. <laughs> now, here's what I'll say. I perfect would be perfectly fine sitting in my New York City apartment playing Final Fantasy VII. So. You know what? If you are a single person, like I, you have no place to judge me. If you are married or in a serious relationship and you're sheltering in place, all right, I will take your abuse. But if you don't have to respond to, to these social pressures to have a place to walk around and, uh, you know, a partner who perhaps is not as accommodating to just sitting indoors and playing video games for months, then you have no standing. And these are the types of compromises we make in a marriage. All right. There are places to walk. I just went for a bike ride, dude. <laughs> well, no, we're, we, uh, we live in Manhattan, like. There's no. It's not like you can walk out in uh, in Bushwick and not have fifty people in your face immediately. I mean, I'm in. I'm in. I'm not in Bushwick, but there's people all over the place. And I don't know, man. I, I mean, I can go to the park whenever I want. So mm-hmm. I, it sounds like but you're yes. blaming your wife, Sean. No, 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 no. This is. You know what? This is my choice, and I will live with my choice. And if if I am a vector. And I spread to this innocent population. I, you know what? I will kill myself. I will commit suicide because I will not be able to live with the guilt. But again, this is not this is uh, this is not me not having an idea. We both have tests. We both test it negative. Two weeks shelter in place. So you took the swab and the nose test. We did. Yeah, that thing will fuck you up. I mean, you know. It it only lasts a second, but yes, it goes very far back, and it's extremely uncomfortable. Your your test came in a little later than your wife's, right? Her test came in negative, and then it was yours. Yeah, for whatever reason, they just didn't call me till after, like sev- a few days after. But huh. yeah, they both came back negative. They they dropped a couple of tests on the floor. One of them came back positive. <laughs> one of them came back negative, and they're like, you know what? Let's let's send the the negative one to the guy whose wife came back negative. <laughs> Let's see. I'm looking at uh, LiveScience.com, and it says here that uh, false negatives result about 30% of the time. So uh, I'd say uh, within the next week, maybe call your Uber driver that you had <laughs> made drive you for two hours and check up on uh, how how that guy's doing or lady's doing. Uh First of all, Andy, they are a driver in New York City, uh, so that not necessarily my fault. And uh, second of all, all three of us were wearing masks in the car. I would like to note that. No sneezing or cough, and gloves. No sneezing or coughing took place. Um, But yes, look, uh, I know. All right, I know. 
But and you said it was a surgical mask, not the kind that covers your entire face? Or not the kind that covers, yes. <laughs> that seals in your mouth and nose, but the one where it's very easy for air to travel out the sides? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> What in my defense, I will say there is there are no ethical consumer decisions under capitalism, and in I fact, think staying becoming, home in a pandemic uh, a si- is an ethical consideration, no matter what the economic <laughs> situation is. Becoming a silent pathogen carrier is, you know, this is like this is liberal boycottism and liberal shaming. You think you can change these larger structural forces through individual decisions. But I, as a materialist, recognize that me going to an Airbnb in Connecticut does not make a difference for these these larger structural forces that operate on us and create pandemics. That sounds like something a super spreader would say. No, as usual, I am proud to be the only socialist on this podcast who recognizes that only structural forces affect pandemics and not individual decisions or consumption choices, such as uh, renting an Airbnb. What are you going to do after two weeks? Are you going to go back to New York? Are you going to go on to your next victim? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go on a tour. And... Uh, yeah, no, I wanted to go back to New York, but the virus began giving me instructions to spread it in Vermont and other regions in Connecticut. It has not been oh God, to you're going to kill Bernie Sanders. On to the next one, you know. I'm going to go back to New York at the end of these two weeks, and unless I develop symptoms, in which case I will self-quarantine until they disappear. But, uh, yes. And I will, you know what, I will reveal... I will reveal the town name to the listeners after I have safely left so that we can see if, if I am responsible for mass death here. But I will not be because we are social distancing, six feet away, shelter in place. All right. Now, were you in a, a limousine with that Uber driver or um, was that a, and was it a warm day so you could have the windows open so that air would circulate out of that car so that that poor working person... Uh, wouldn't contract your virus after sitting in a car with you for two hours. We had the windows open, yes. Weren't you uh, complaining about your Uber driver's smell? You said he smelled like the basement. No, I did not say that. <laughs> you made that up. <laughs> and I offered, I gave a fifty-dollar tip at the end. Uh, so you know, that's that's the cost of a human life. I took economics. Actually, uh, speaking of the cost of a human life, Stephen, you were looking into this. <laughs> It's apparently very little if they have they're digging mass graves on in Bronx. Yeah, Hard oh, Island. Oh, they've got mass graves. Wait, oh, uh, uh, well, they're they've always been digging mass graves on Hard Island. Um, okay, well, recently though, not fifty years ago. No, no, I mean it's ongoing. It's been ongoing. Uh, they're just digging more now and faster. Oh, okay. What were they digging it for before? Uh, poor people. Like unclaimed bodies that they just they don't know what to do with. Just someone who can't afford uh, to have a funeral, to have like a their own plot, or can't afford like a cremation fee, things like that. Yeah, it's hmm. fucked up. So yeah. my Uber driver <laughs> <laughs> and his family. <laughs> Jesus. Ah. <laughs> uh. Look, yeah, all right, roast me. If you, the listener, wants to roast me, go ahead. I feel shitty about this, but 
hey, it is what it is. We did our best. And again, except for the Uber, we have not been anywhere near any people for the entirety of this. I think I'm going to get out of this never contracting coronavirus. I would like to remind the listener that this is a Patreon episode, so if you could do your part by also harassing Sean on Twitter, where everyone can see it, um, <laughs> that would be extremely helpful. So, Stephen, you were looking into uh, the economic impact. Yeah. So, just this past week, they released a new set of jobless initial jobless claims, and it was 6.6 million. And that brings the total tally up for this crisis to about 17 million which is a little bit over 10% of the labor force is out of a job specifically due to this. So next month when we get the unemployment data, it you know, it's going to be it was up to 4.4% last month and adding just conservatively adding in this it'll be in like the 13 to 14% range. Uh yeah, give me a sec. I'm coming up with 32. Point three three uh repeating of course percentage of survival in one month it's already at where it was during the depth of the last recession it's fucking wild mm. <laughs> yeah well, i'm sure when we all go back to work it'll uh, you know it'll, it'll go right back to normal you know world's shortest bull market and uh it'll be like this never even happened i was looking into uh the cares act the um specifically the payroll protection program which is like a lending facility for small businesses so there are 30 million small businesses in the u.s and most of them are in like hospitality and services things that would be closed down right now so like let's i did some napkin math and if 15 million of them each need an average of about 45,000 in credit for maybe six months or so which would be sort of in line with like the 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 SBA's normal lending guidelines for like a line of credit to a business. That's about six hundred and thirty billion dollars. Wow. And the CARES Act only authorized thirty three hundred and fifty billion dollars in such loans. And to date only about hundred and twenty billion of that has been approved. So and even less dispersed. So it's just like freaking peanuts compared to what they need and like uh i've just been there's a lot of youtubes of like business owners being like i applied like a hundred times to x number of banks and they're either just too busy or they declined me for some reason Hmm. yes i i actually heard or i read um that the a lot of states are facing uh overloads in their unemployment mainframes largely because they run on an outdated or they can't they can't improve the processing speed because their mainframes run on COBOL, which is a uh, coding language that was created in 1958 and fell out of use in the 80s. And nobody knows the language, so they can't update they're like dusty mainframes that nobody's touched in decades um to fix uh, them and now there's just like a massive search for COBOL programmers oh my yeah so COBOL is like a, a mainframe language that other like uh i've heard of other companies that they're like their base sort of mainframe runs on COBOL 
and they have to find like one of like the six different boomers who knows the language <laughs> yeah apparently night well yeah in it's it's uh, incredibly prevalent in banking and apparently 95 percent of all atm transactions uh are run through uh COBOL at some level hmm. yeah it's really common for like payment like uh yeah atm payment systems and stuff hmm. yeah and like I could just say, my wife lost her job because of uh, obviously shutdowns with coronavirus. Um, or theoretically, she'll get it back whenever this is over. But she applied for unemployment, and you know, it's something where obviously, if you're calling in, which you are usually supposed to do, that is literally impossible. You cannot get through the phone lines in New York State unemployment at all. And if you're using the website, right. that is also impossible about ninety percent of the time. And so we managed to make an application. But they're only sending my wife $200 a week, which is far less than she actually made. And, like, you can't get anybody on the phone to be like, hey, this number is wrong. Why are you only sending 200 a week? You know? So it's just something where we don't really know what we're actually going to do about that. It's And that's even a massive improvement over um, <clears throat> what it was originally. Because originally, uh, when I filed for unemployment back in November... It was a um, you had a one week waiting period where you wouldn't get any money, um, which makes no sense. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. they assume that, you know, you're getting uh, your last paycheck or so something stupid like that. Um, but it's basically it's a week or two until you even get any money at all, uh, in addition to the time that they take to process it. And so even getting money immediately that is something that they waived just because it's something they could have done the whole time. Um, mm. But they um, just implemented it now for the coronavirus thing. Also, it, Sean, your wife should be getting an extra $600 uh, because That's that came I into thought. effect. Yeah, that came into effect this week. I got, I got my extra... Um, uh, my extra little money boost this week, which felt great. And whenever someone fucking like, whenever, you know, you have that clip recently of Hillary Clinton saying, Oh, Bernie Sanders never got anything done when he was in the Senate. Well, he's given me thousands of dollars by the time this is done, like right. 600 a week for the next, uh, I don't, I don't know. However many weeks this, this fucking thing is like, that's, yeah, he's like, He's legitimately saved lives. Yeah. And he oh, extended absolutely. unemployment for an extra 13 weeks. Like, that's his work, is sticking that on the bill. He did that. And it's, and that's that's been his legacy throughout. Is he, he hasn't passed major bills, but he's stuck things like that on other bills that have saved lives. And, you know, uh, we didn't dwell on it enough last time, but it turns out that donating to Bernie Sanders was actually the savviest investment decision Andy Palmer ever made. 400% return on that one. <laughs> I mean, by the time this pandemic's over, it's going to be bigger than that, maybe. Um, but uh, also, an interesting thing I discovered uh, while on unemployment, because while I was on unemployment, and I haven't talked about this on the show, I think I told you guys this um, off the show, though, was that um, 
my girlfriend actually, she got on unemployment several months before I did. And so everything I did was kind of an echo of what she did. Um, like she was able to like say, okay, here's what you have to do this, that, and the other thing. And, um, what ended up happening is that because within that, I'd say about three month gap, I could, we could actually catch changes in the unemployment process as they were happening. Like by January, it was clear that the New York state unemployment office was actually making preparations for larger volumes of people. For instance, when she went in, yeah, yeah. When she went in, they, um, uh, she had more like one-on-one meetings with the unemployment staff um, because you have to go in for like a, I, I, and they've probably gotten rid of this now. When you first go in, you have an orientation meeting. Now it's probably over uh, some kind of like uh, off-brand video chat that was made 15 years ago. Um, but it, it, you, it used to be you would go in and there would, uh, you would have your orientation meeting. And then about three months into it, you would have a follow-up meeting um, where it'd be a uh, one-on-one where they'd be like, man, you don't, you don't have a fucking job yet. Do you uh, let's figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, and so when she went in, it was one-on-one when I went in, it was a group thing like the orientation where there were like 10 of us. So clearly they were preparing the unemployment office of New York for an increase in uh, volume of unemployed people. And this was in about January. So this was, you know, there were hints of the coronavirus. I don't know if they got a directive from the top down or if they just decided, you know what, there's a bubble. This thing's going to explode any day now. Uh, but they were definitely preparing or it could have just been Cuomo budget cuts. Um, and so they were saying like, oh, we don't want to have as many um, one-on-one meetings so we can hire fewer people. But whatever the case, they they were in, before this even blew up, they were in the process of changing the system. Yeah. I did want to just build on uh, those some of those economic stats that Steve gave just a minute earlier. According to a Data for Progress poll, which, you know, uh, take or leave them, but this seems accurate. Uh, according to this poll uh, released April 9th, 52% of Americans under 45 has have lost their job, had hours reduced, or been furloughed. 52%. Uh, and it should be noted, Congress is on vacation right now. Wow. After more than <laughs> half of Americans have either lost their jobs or had their hours cut. Uh, so, I mean, this is an insane and unprecedented situation. It's it's called self-care, Sean. It's very <laughs> stressful having to work in Congress during a pandemic, and I think they deserve a break. Right. Oh, and then from that same poll, 35% of Americans under 35 now say they don't have health insurance. So more than a third of Americans under 35 report they do not have health insurance now because of all these uh, furloughs and layoffs and such. And in a fucking pandemic, too. Yeah, Um, for for people who do have, who are fortunate enough to have health insurance, their premiums might very well go up. I'd actually like to give some advice to any of our listeners who lost their health insurance and maybe were on antidepressants. Uh, best way to get through the withdrawals. Well, first, uh, you taper. What you got to do is um, as soon as you've lost your health insurance and you've got your last uh, supply of, of your pills, um, you got to cut you got to cut them in half every two weeks uh, to taper off of them if you have no other way to get pills. Uh, and then once you finally go off of them for good, Counter-Strike Go is very good for that. Uh <laughs> with weed and um 
uh, I don't know, Bud Light Seltzer if you can't find White Claw or whatever. That's that's how I did it. <laughs> would you would you also say shaving your head helps, Andy? Uh, mm-hmm. Only only a few weeks later, I found out I'm go. Uh, this is how I found out that I've got a receding hairline. Yeah, I mean, all hair is receding a little bit. It's just weird to like to to be like, oh, hey, the this is much higher than it used to be. Back when I got a buzz cut as a kid. Sure. You know what though, like, uh, with this COVID nineteen shit, I mean, it makes you think a lot about mortality. So you know, like, it sucks to find out, like, oh, hey, I'm sort of balding. But like at the same time, if you're alive, that's a good problem to have. So it's like you know, I bought a new computer. And I uh, gambled and lost uh, $400 on the stock market uh, entirely on the mentality that it's like, if I care about these things, it's actually great because it will mean I'm alive. You know, if I die, I'm not going to give a shit that I lost 400 on the stock market. But if I do give a shit, then that's a great problem to have, isn't it? It's sort of like YOLO. Yes, exactly. The uh, modern philosopher of our age, Drake. I'm going to say, I, you're shitting on me for shaving my head, but you just gambled yes. $400 on the sh- stock market. Like, who's having a bigger breakdown? Hey, Sean wanted and me I to join that, too. Computer. Well, that's normal. Sean, Sean was like, Yogi, you want to do the Robinhood app with me? And I was like, nah, I'm all right. I, I see too much pain in Best Brokers anyway. <laughs> and he, t- <laughs> he told me about the Airbnb in Connecticut. And I thought he meant, like, two months from now. And I was like, I don't know, bro. I mean, maybe... Sometimes someplace, but not during Corona. Yeah, it's also worth noting to the listeners that Sean just went to Yogi about the Airbnb in Connecticut. No, I originally went to Yogi, but it seems like in terms of super spreader, if all... So actually, uh, my wife found an Airbnb that was like a farmhouse that actually had its own recording studio, and she was pitching me on inviting all three of you guys and actually doing the podcast from up there which would have been a cool idea, but I did consider that multiple people going increases the odds of a super spreader. So it would even be more irresponsible if all of us had gone instead of just me and my wife. But that was considered. It'd be least risky if none of us had gone. I think we should make that clear. Yes. but alas, uh, we are uh, here together today to reflect on um, the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign for president and, you know, kind of mainly what we're feeling about this and, and what we think can be done from here. I think each of us will have explanations for, you know, um, backseat quarterbacking to mix metaphors completely there. But uh, each of us will have ideas about what could have been done differently. But I think everybody's just guessing at this point. And, you know, like at least with myself, I had things I said at the time that I wish they had been doing differently. But up until Nevada or up until right after Nevada, up until Super Tuesday, it looked like everything was working fine. And it looked like they were going to get away with it the exact same way Trump did by taking 35 percent of the field that refused to consolidate. But the Democrats managed to consolidate and... uh, uh, and he got beat, but um, but yeah, I guess that'll be kind of the the topic of discussion here. Does anybody have any particularly uh, pertinent thoughts to kick this off with now? Well, my take on it is that uh, what we're gonna hear ad nauseum is that we lost, and it's true, we did lose. Um, that's, there's no disputing that, but the reason that we're going to be told that we lost is not going to be the actual 
reason that we lost. You know, we're going to be told, oh, Bernie, you know, didn't have the right kind of appeal. He, uh, you know, made this or that tactical mistake. When the reality is that uh, we were trying to, the, the best analogy I can think of is that we were trying to get to the top of, to the height of power by climbing a rope that the people at the top could cut whenever they wanted. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth trying to make that climb. Um, that it wasn't, there wasn't a possibility that we could get to the top before they cut it. But ultimately the reason we lost is that we were going up against people who were so powerful that, uh, you know, they were not going to let that power slip away and something as trivial as an election to them. And so it, it, you know, obviously, yeah, it's saying, you know, what he could have done differently, um, this, that, or the other thing is, uh, bullshit. Um, and because we did, we did probably the best we could have done trying to take this path to power. I think the, the message to take away, um, to build on this stupid analogy is that we need to build a ladder because we're not going to, we're not going to get there. Um, trying to go the standard way like the people who make it to the presidency are the people who already have this kind of um this uh how do you how would you say it like they they've already made an agreement with the powers that be to maintain the status quo like uh looking at trump and obama who by like superficial measures are completely different in terms of who they are as president, but in terms of their governing are relatively similar, especially in terms of how they react to the status quo. You know, Obama came in during recession and just, you know, made the fall as comfortable as possible for the bankers. And Trump, is going to more or less uh, do that with this recession. You know, he's going to bail out the people at the top with the help of Congress, and that's just how things are going to go. And when you have someone who is actually threatening that status quo, that's very comfortable for, um, you know, the 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 billionaire class, um, the, the hedge fund class, uh, all of those people, they are going to use every tool at their disposal to stop that person. And, you know, we we were building towards a mass movement and we took, we took one strategy and ultimately it didn't work out, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have fought that battle because we were able to gain some ground in that battle, even though we ultimately lost it. And so it's, it it wasn't a lost cause. Um, It's definitely a setback that he lost, but it was never guaranteed that he was going to win in the first place. Um, it's also very clear that uh, it also lets us know how far um, the establishment will go to keep someone like Bernie uh, away from the levers of power, um, especially like during this election. You know, we saw everything from the the shadow app um, all through the uh, uh, the discrepancy in exit polling. Um, the voter suppression that was carried out by the Democratic Party, the thing that they uh, consistently argue that the Republicans are doing, the Democrats did it themselves. Uh, you know, in, in Democrat-controlled states, even like California, you saw massive lines of voters um, 
and because you know polls were closed or they just didn't have the resources to uh, carry out the primary, and so that pushed away a lot of people, you know, a lot of working class people who who couldn't wait in line for hours because they had to go to their jobs. Um, there was also uh, Obama. There was a, an article in Politico that came out uh, either today or the last few days uh, that talked about kind of Obama's um, kind of backroom dealings where you really get a, a sense of what a piece of shit this guy is because while he's talking to these candidates, you know, convincing them to drop out and line up behind Biden, he's also very concerned about not looking like he's putting his thumb on the scale for Biden. Um, so you had you had Obama doing that. And then, of course, finally, uh, you had Tom Perez basically playing chicken with people's lives saying, yeah, uh, if you want your vote to count, you have to risk your life to go out and vote while there is a pandemic raging. And if your state tries to save people's lives, I will take away their delegates at the convention. Like just a craven, um, just being a craven bloodless psychopath to keep Bernie out of it. One of one of the lines actually in the Politico article was that um, someone, one of like Obama's aides, cause they like someone who said this anonymously, cause they all say it anonymously in these articles one of these aides was saying, you know, uh, Obama doesn't want to step into this, but if it looks like Bernie's going to run away with it, he's going to have to do something. Meaning that the plan always was to do everything that they can to stop Bernie while at the same time making it look like they're not trying to stop Bernie. Um, they just had to balance it so that their hand wouldn't show that much. And, you know, building on that, what I would say is actually everybody, you guys were all roasting me earlier, but everybody who voted is actually more of a piece of shit than me because they put their community in danger in order to cast their ballot. Um, no, but look, what I would say is when we talk about like the lengths these people went to to stop Bernie Sanders, like obviously the shadow app and that kind of stuff is important, but they literally committed mass murder like uh, that can't be underlined enough. Because the thing is, yes, as of Super Tuesday, Bernie Sanders was down in the delegate count, but it was a very slight uh, length, or he was only very slightly down in the delegate count after Super Tuesday. These people, the Democrats, the DNC, knew coronavirus was here, and it was mass murder to have, you know, the people in Illinois, Florida, Arizona, Wisconsin, they knew to send these people out, they tried to get Ohio to vote too, to send these people out to their deaths to kill their families, they knew, but they had to run up the score before they froze it because they couldn't freeze it at Super Tuesday and run the risk of, say, in June, you know, when things settle down, people see a pandemic and are like, oh, shit, maybe we should try that Medicare for all. They needed to run up the score so that, you know, like Bernie said in his concession, it was almost mathematically impossible for him to get the delegates from the position he dropped out in. But had they waited on all those states until after the pandemic, you never know. You never know. And they just didn't want to run that risk. So they murdered their own fucking voters to do it. And, you know, yeah, they're like, I don't want to be fatalistic about maybe there are things that we can talk about that Bernie could have done differently. But yes, the DNC was willing to literally kill people to stop him. And a, w one important thing to note uh, about the DNC, and some of you probably remember this, but in 2016, there was a class action lawsuit brought against the DNC for putting their thumb on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton. 
And the art, the um, class action lawsuit got thrown out, not because they didn't have a case that the DNC was doing that, but because, according to the judge, to the extent plaintiffs wish to air their general grievances with the DNC or its candidate selection process, their redress is through the ballot box, the DNC's internal workings, or their right of free speech, not through the judiciary, which means that the DNC can is legally allowed to rig the election to whatever degree they want. And the only uh, Democratic voters have no uh, redress through uh, the courts to challenge that. Uh, their only redress is to either, um, well, to go to the, they say the judge said at the ballot box, which is a fucking farce, because if the DNC is ringing the election, that's not going to be an option unless you vote, uh, you know, for the fucking Green Party or what have you. Um, then, or through DNC's internal workings. Well, if the DNC is rigging the elections, then you can never get the right number of um, delegates into the DNC to change the internal workings, which is part of why they pushed so hard to get Tom Perez there instead of Keith Ellison. And then, of course, the right of free speech, which is basically what we're doing right now. And and this isn't just like, uh, th- this this wasn't just something that the judge said. But the DNC's um, uh, counsel, uh, the DNC's lawyer, this guy Bruce Spiva, made this argument. He said the party has the freedom of association to decide how it's going to select its representatives to the convention and to the state party, even to define what constitutes even handedness and impartiality really would already drag the court well into a political question and a question of how the party runs its own affairs. The party could have favored a candidate. I'll put it that way. Basically saying it, we are legally allowed to pick our candidate ahead of time uh, and the voters can go fuck themselves because we are not actually uh, bound to a free and fair election process within our primaries. Uh, that last part was me. That, that last part wasn't Spiva, but, I, you know, paraphrasing him. But they, uh, so to it's not even a conspiracy to say that the DNC was rigged. It's, it is the DNC policy that we can pick whoever we want. And we can rig it if we want and fuck you. And the only reason that they're hiding it is just the, uh, to maintain that illusion for enough people, uh, mostly in the, um, I'd say professional managerial class, the, the, the people who are kind of vote blue, no matter who, just to rig it enough that those people aren't, or to hide it enough while they're rigging it, that those people won't catch on and won't, won't get hip to that and get disillusioned and step away from the DNC. So it, 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 I mean, it's the, the fix was basically in from the beginning. Um, it, and on top of that, it's obviously also, uh, they also obviously had to kill Bernie before the general election because they can't, it's, it's a lot, they, they don't have the legal cover to rig a general election, but they do have the legal cover to rig a primary selection process. I've been a Bernie supporter for five years, basically. I, I mean, I think that's the case for all of us here, actually. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll defend that guy until basically I die. And I really love him and I love his policies. And the, the structural reasons that you guys bring up for why the Democratic Party was basically just going to make they're going to try to cheat him out of 
any potential major gains he made, yeah, that's all correct. I guess the only thing that I would say that if I had to sum up one of his main failings as like an unforced error, if you will, it's that um, he his mission, which he mostly succeeded in to create a political revolution, was kind of undermined by his basic approach to his personal politics, where you you have a chance to attack the main standard bearer of the democratic establishment, namely Biden, and he shies away from it because, you know, Joe's my friend and, you know, they, they've both been senators. They're part, they're kind of part of the world of the beltway and they have this sort of collegiality that he doesn't want to, you know, sort of cross that line in public anyway. And I think, so like, if you're going to go around and say you have a, we're forming a political revolution, we're building up this mass base, we're going to build up a power outside of Washington, essentially. I don't think you can say that and then go around and then not attack these people who don't want us to have health care they don't want us to have free college. They want us to be saddled with student debt. They, yeah, I mean, they're just fundamentally opposed to social democratic reform. So I guess that's all I would have to say for, like, what could Bernie have done differently? But all of the structural considerations of, like, the DNC with, the, like, the shadow app and all that, that's totally valid. And I think it was sort of, like, maybe a bit more, a little over half of why he failed was... The DNC is just so fucking powerful. But an important chunk of it is like, you know, Bernie Bernie was able to build this movement up from essentially nothing. And I'm going to be defending him on that basis for like the rest of my life. But also, I think he, maybe he wasn't the right guy to get us over the finish line, so to speak. So he's built up the machine that we could we can take and use for the future, but we need to find, you know, new candidates and build continue to build on the move on the momentum to like to really finally, for real, in this thing and get somebody we want we like in the presidency. Yeah, and you know, like what I would say is, with regards to the Democratic Party, I think Bernie running as a Democrat in 2016 makes perfect sense. Because had Bernie ran third party in 2016, he would have been, you know, a novelty, another two one percent Green Party candidate. He runs in the Democratic Party in 2016 and he buys himself all of this credibility to the point where I think right now Bernie Sanders is the only person who could establish a credible left party in the United States. So, you know, something that uh, and again, you know, I agree with Steve. I think Bernie is a hero in American politics and. I, I don't want to criticize him, but I one strategic disagreement, what I would say be that in 2020, I think the general electorate is more amenable to social democracy than the Democratic primary electorate. And I think you obviously require two different electoral strategies to reach the general electorate and the people who are registered Democrats and vote in a Democratic primary. So I think using the credibility that he had from 2016, I do think that if this wasn't, you know, anathema to his nature, he could say, I'm going to start a new American Labor Party. I'm going to make a third party bid against Trump and Biden or whatever. And apparently there are sore loser laws that in a lot of states to kind of prevent people from doing that, which is, again, another 
fuck you to democracy that the two parties did. But I, I do think it is unfortunate that he's, you know, as we all know, going to line up behind Biden when there might really be a shot for him to make a third party bid this year. Yeah, so Bernie's campaign has ended, but in my view, reality is endorsing his ideas right now because we're in the in the midst of like basically a wartime escalation and no one's talking about how to pay for stuff anymore. People are just looking at supply chains and like what who needs to go where? Do they have what they need to do their jobs? It's like a, it's like you're in a war. And in order to fight this thing, you need Medicare for all so that people don't have to worry about their finances when they, you know, follow the CDC guidelines. And like, you know, if they need to go to the hospital, they just go. They don't worry about their their household's finances. And I think if Medicare for all had a durable majority support among both Democrats and Republicans before all this this happened, like going into Super Tuesday, it's only going to get stronger. And I don't, I mean, I, I mean, Biden stupidly said that Italy was an example of a place where single payer healthcare doesn't do anything in his, in to paraphrase him, doesn't do anything to help the situation with the coronavirus. And I'm just, I was just screaming at the screen when he said that in the debate, because I'm like, motherfucker, no one is saying that it would eliminate the virus somehow because by having people be able to pay for their health insurance. They're saying that it would just help a lot. And you know what? The joke's on him. I, well, the joke's on him and also us, because we're about to surpass Italy in terms of deaths. Mamma mia! So even on like the his like caricature sort of argument against single payer, it doesn't even work on those grounds. Actually, Stephen, I'm uh, reporting for my death copter now, and it looks like with the, the numbers coming in, I'm uh, looking at the numbers uh, worldwide, the United States has already surpassed Spain in the number of deaths, and the United States is, uh, as of this recording, just 100 uh, behind Italy in the number of deaths, and with America having over one death per minute at the current rate, by the time we have finished recording this, it is likely that America will be the number one death center of the coronavirus in the world. Wow. That's Good. I mean, bad. But that that just, like, that shows that even Biden's, like, stupid-ass, like, uh, argument against single-payer, it doesn't even work on its own terms. And, like I was saying, like, reality is just proving Bernie's ideas are correct and that the American people increasingly want them. Another Another thing to note about the Italy thing is that you know, you can make all your, you can even say like, oh, well, you know, proportional to the population, uh, they didn't have as many deaths as America. But the real question is going to be after these, um, excuse me, uh, after, after the virus passes, how many people in Italy are going to be $50,000 in debt because they had to go to the hospital uh, so that they wouldn't die choking on their own blood on their floor? Yeah, that's true. Well, and yeah, and that actually does set up kind of the question probably next year after we have the presidential election will be either, I, I think we mentioned this earlier, either there's going to be something like a 40% spike in health insurance premiums for everyone, which I don't think will be tolerated by the political class, but I think their solution will be we're going to have a massive bailout for the health insurance companies. 
And, you know, I was disappointed. I thought this most recent round of bailout of the banks that we had would generate more public anger. But I like to think at least maybe another bailout of the health insurance industry. If the alternative is like, okay, so we're going to spend just as much as we would on Medicare for all, but just give it to these middlemen instead of just doing Medicare or Medicaid for all, you know, I I hope there will be a public movement opposing that bailout and saying, no, fuck you, just have a single payer. Uh, So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, because ultimately, you know, the bailout is going to be it. It's like a, a, Obama, a Obamacare had the um, uh, uh, Rap Rock Obamacare had that. What was it? Uh, it had a subsidy that would if you were low enough income, it would pay the difference on your premium, which allowed health insurers to still charge high premiums on people who couldn't afford them with the government stepping in and paying the difference. Ultimately, with that being taken out of everyone's uh taxes and of course that's you know that money isn't real or anything but uh it the the pressure that it gives them an excuse to make cuts in other places and um reduce social programs by saying oh look at the budget deficit and it's going to be it's just going to be that same sort of thing over again where they're just going to be pumping money public money into the insurance companies and you know they'll say it's it's for everyone's benefit and also uh you know now we have to uh, cut, you know, whatever services are left in the United States that aren't military. And going back to Bernie Sanders for a second, um, I do want to say, and I don't think this person is primarily responsible, but I do honestly believe it's unfalsifiable, but I 100% believe that had Elizabeth Warren before Super Tuesday dropped out and endorsed Bernie Sanders, he would be the nominee right now. And so I just want to say to all the listeners, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the finest handcrafted Belgian monastery beer and I'm going to put it away in my cellar and I'm going to wait for that special day where we're drawing closer to it every day now where there is a military coup in this country and the military arrests Elizabeth Warren and puts her before a firing squad and I will turn on my live stream and I will share with you as I enjoy one of the finest beers ever crafted on earth by uh, Jesuit monks you know, or the Chimay monks, we'll see. But I will enjoy every second of this beer as Elizabeth Warren, shot by firing squad, displays across the CNN screen. And I would even suggest, you know, if that does not come to pass, then I think whenever Elizabeth Warren loses her fucking Senate seat to that, you know, uh, uh, Kennedy degenerate idiot moron, whenever he kicks her out of her Senate seat, I think that should replace Labor Day as the holiday of the left. I think that should be a cause for celebration because fuck Elizabeth Warren. uh, And absolutely, I can't wait for uh, the military coup and or she just loses her Senate seat. We will actually uh, hopefully have the uh, Twitch stream up and running and be able to route audio through our computers into Twitch. Uh, ideally before the military coup, uh, but it might be pretty close. It might be pretty down to the wire for Warren's execution, but we will stream that with commentary from all the hosts from Garb Stakers. Right. Like, Yogi, did you have anything you wanted to say? Sean, why are you hard? (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I'll promise the listeners. I will, you know, first I want to enjoy the beer and have a moment to savor Elizabeth Warren's execution. But, you know, after that, it'll be more party. So I'll shotgun maybe a cheaper beer like a Rainier or something. But, you know, at first you want to kind of enjoy the moment and then you kind of transition to more of a celebratory party atmosphere. Sean's going to uh, 
join the military for the coup and learn sleight of hand magic so that he can slip out the blank bullet that they give him in the firing line or just make sure that he has a live bullet while he's doing warren's execution (laughs) i you know i do want to say i don't want to dwell on it too much because you know i guess maybe we sound hysterical or whatever but yeah i was pleased that we sound hysterical I was pleased that Matt Crisman of Chapo has endorsed my theory that a military coup is extremely unlikely to impose barrack socialism, but at this point is more likely than electoralism imposing socialism. Uh, Because, you know, there is a situation with coronavirus if we saw an actual collapse of civil society. When was that your theory? My theory was that uh, in the United States... It's, you know, I was being sarcastic, of course, a military coup would be horrible and would result in suppression of civil liberties, mass violence, and all sorts of things. But I was kind of making a facetious point that I'm going to start looking for a Hugo Chavez figure in the U.S. military because, just like any other country, you could have a young officer class that uh, sees the total collapse of civil society and essentially cuts, like Matt Christman said, cuts the head off the snake and takes over government. So I was pleased to see him somewhat endorse my theory of the possibility of that. My theory is uh, we're just getting into a civil war. So California will secede from the Union and form Cascadia with Oregon and Washington. Gavin, Newse- Gavin Newsom will, le- will lead our, our fledgling socialist co- uh, republic. Oh man, I there's like a zero percent chance of that with all the major industries uh, along the West Coast. As much as I love the idea of Cascadia uh, and have a flag in my room for it, embarrassingly because it's because uh, the Washington flag, state flag, is a piece of shit, and I want you know something from. I want to show where I came from uh, to myself, but. Uh, as much as I like that, like there is no chance that socialism is going to come out of the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast with between Silicon Valley and um, Bellevue, Washington, uh, and Amazon. They, they, the capitalism has strengthened its chokehold on that region um, mm. to a degree where you know whenever it's unknown, whenever it's going to recover from that. Yeah, I mean. Um, so maybe we don't get a socialist republic, but Gavin Newsom did say did call refer to California as a nation state the other day, and I thought that was really neat. Okay. Also, I I don't know if it was him or one of his subordinates, but when they were imposing the lockdown order, they uh, initially made an exception for Disneyland because they also referred to that as a nation state. Wow. <laughs> oh, it's like Luxembourg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you want to talk about evil corporate actors. Disney has blocked the UFC from holding fights on Indian reservations during coronavirus uh, because, I guess, the bad publicity of spreading the virus throughout Native American reservations was just a little bit too much for Disney. Why did you switch from Indian reservations to Native American reservations? Because saying I the had sentiment. already started. I like I how when it comes talking. to them getting the virus, it's Native Americans. But when it comes to the UFC fights on the land, it's Indian. 
Cause no, like, because, like, land, fuck them. It's just them. But them getting a virus, uh, Native Americans, watch out now. Because I had already started talking, and I realized that I should say Native American instead of Indian, so I corrected myself the second time. It's a perfectly acceptable speech pattern that I engaged in there. I think one thing that I, I is interesting to speculate about is what's going to happen next with the Democrats. I mean, this is just kind of this is just for fun. I think it's there's nothing left to the socialist pro, uh, project in this uh, presidential election or maybe even any presidential election after this. But it's it is kind of interesting to see where they're going to go with the presidential election, whether they're going to try to actually force biden out and shoehorn in cuomo um or whether biden himself is against all odds gonna possibly win this or just you know have an old man moment and eat total shit in front of uh in front of the country losing it again to trump just like the dog it's is trump planning for. for four more years hindsight's 2020 trump's winning i'm calling it, it the, the dnc is more elitist than it is democratic and biden was fucked from the get i watched a lot of wire recently and you know it's clear to me they had a gat on bernie since day one and they knew that no socialist had a gat on them and honestly they they weren't wrong at a moment's notice Buttigieg gone fucking klobuchar gone on all both of them are just like you know what biden's our person in that moment we should have known it's it's over because the United States choosing people over profits and choosing to not divide and conquer all their enemies, including their own citizens, it, it's probably not happening. And Sanders certainly opened people's eyes, but in the middle of a pandemic, we can't get people to get on board with, hey, everyone should have fucking health care. The country has lost whatever moral integrity that they thought they had with any sense of the United States being a country of moral obligation when it comes to doing the right thing by the people of the world. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you know, that uh, one person linked to Clinton uh, died because of corona, and on Twitter people were just going, another murder by the Clinton campaign. <laughs> and honestly, like, that's how I fucking feel at this point. How many people you got to murder someone else? That's 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 a true power, sense of power in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I I I think Trump will probably run away with it, but there's still a chance that Biden might win. I mean, if unemplo- unemployment, if you're sitting at thirty percent unemployment, which isn't out of the question for long enough, I mean, how can a president you uh, survive that under normal circumstances? The moment Trump made fun of Bloomberg. Um, and he called them short or some shit. I had so many people that would self-identify as liberals or Democrats or or even leftists being like, ah, oh, man, I fucking hate that our dictator of a President Trump is funny. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, it's, it's done. <laughs> the only person he can't fucking go up with like that is Sanders. And it, Sanders is not happening. And it's so fucking frustrating because you saw those polls. You saw how things were fucked with. I mean, the only people that seem to have had any real fear are the you people on Wall Street because the stock prices of Humana, CVS, Cigna, United Health, and Anthem all went up uh, riding that wave that boosted shares by as much as 10%. Yeah. Uh, this is from FastCompany.com. Like, I mean, th- those people were the only people that were like, this shit might fucking happen. And 
the moment it didn't, they were out. They were like, all right, fuck it, we're making money. We ain't going to be shut down anytime soon. Yep. I have a I have a slightly different view. Uh, I think most likely scenario in this election is that Joe Biden dies of coronavirus before November. Um, because you like you have to imagine they've got him on lockdown now, but this is the Democrats we're talking about. There's no way they don't fuck it up. You know, let like some 18 year old intern in there to sneeze on him when like bringing him a latte or whatever. Uh, so I think that's the most likely scenario. But in the event that Joe Biden is alive on Election Day, I do think Joe Biden will win. And I think that's because, you know, Trump had a, a window where he could have done shut down the country for four months, send everybody four months of UBI checks and just do the Boris Johnson thing where you essentially just take some left economics and mix that with nativism. And, you know, you're untouchable from the usual kind of uh, uh, signaling of um, people in New York and Los Angeles who most of the country hates. So I think he had that opportunity, but instead he listened to the Chamber of Commerce and the United States is going to, I think without a doubt, have the worst coronavirus outbreak in the world and probably the least amount of government support for it. So I just think at some point when you're at, you know, 30 or 40 percent unemployment and, you know, more dead than anywhere else on earth, I just don't think anybody, I shouldn't say it's an impossibility, the Democrats could certainly fuck it up, but I think 90 percent if Biden's alive, he wins. And lastly, I do just want to say, as much as it won't really make a difference in people's lives, it will be kind of funny to see all those Trump supporters get mad when they lose to a guy with fucking dementia who makes fewer public appearances than Osama bin Laden because people are just like, fuck it, we don't like the government, and they vote for the only other option on the ballot. Yeah, I'm hoping Osama bin Laden makes an appearance soon because I'm getting a bit worried about him. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a there's several like different ways that this could play out. One of them to counter, it, it's entirely possible that Biden could win. Another possibility is that you know it's with numbers plateauing, they're going to start to go down um, eventually. Maybe in the next uh, month or so, who knows? But um, I, I get the feeling that uh, you know with Trump listening to the Chamber of Commerce, what's going to happen is they're going to go down to a level where. People think, okay, it's safe to open things up and send everyone back to work. And then because it's going to be more evenly spread throughout the population, it's just going to spike right up again. And then it's possible that Trump will say, you know what, no elections, it's not safe. And then, um, sure. I mean, it, that's that's kind of unlikely because I think it it is entirely possible to do a vote by ballot um, system, but... Uh, Trump could just cancel the election. That's it's it's it the, it's a remote possibility, but it's a possibility. Um, isn't the the general election is mandated constitutionally? Like well, the date. Uh, I mean, it it yeah. I who it, I who knows what <laughs> what really is going to work out constitutionally? Like Obama was supposed to uh, be able to choose a justice at the end of his term. Um, and maybe that wasn't as set in stone as the uh, election day, but um, he certainly Still. was not given that. I think another possibility, and this is one that I, I hope for, there's been talk about uh, Joe Biden getting swapped out by the DNC for, quote, health reasons and uh, getting Cuomo put in there who's now got a lot of like good publicity because he does his like dumbass um 
things where he's like, we're beating it. We're New York strong. And, you know, you've got people like that Randy Rainbow dipshit who are eating every second of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I I want to say that I really hope that that happens because I hate Cuomo more than maybe anyone. But I think that the best case scenario for New Yorkers is if Cuomo runs for president if if Cuomo gets swapped into that presidential run because if he if he loses that's the second best scenario he'll become just this he, uh, and even he'll be uh shown to the whole country to be just an incompetent asshole the actual incompetent asshole he is and not the one that people seem to think not the like you know strong leader that everyone seems to think he is during this corona thing um, and if he wins, that's even better because we don't have to deal with him in New York anymore. We can get a better fucking governor. And on top of that, uh, he, he'll probably get impeached. It's possible he'll either be a really shitty president. He'll be better than Trump, but he'll still be a shitty president. And he might even get midterm impeached uh, by the Republicans and, I don't know, put a bullet in his head out of shame. That That's like best case scenario for me. So I'm I'm... I, I've kind of come around to really hoping that the DNC uh, pushes, like swaps out Biden for Cuomo right now, just as a selfish New Yorker who wants to get rid of him. You you do wonder how long they can keep polishing that turd, though, because, I mean, we've talked about New York State has more cases than any country on Earth like the state itself. I mean, mm-hmm. this is an abysmal failure at every level, and they saw what was happening in, in Italy, and they still waited weeks to shut down. I mean, this guy has thousands of unnecessary deaths on his hand. And so, you know, I mean, like, uh, I just think that as the news goes on, perhaps some of the shine comes off of Cuomo, um, and, you know, maybe they go to Gavin Newsom or something, but we'll see. I mean, they polished the Biden turd long enough for him to take the nomination. So... And, you know, they completely slandered Bernie. So, like, the media is already in Cuomo's um, corner. And so they can just kind of, like, they just need to polish that turd long enough for him to get the nomination. That's all I really care about. And then after that, once it all falls apart, who gives a shit? Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, that's my best case scenario now is that, is that they swap in Cuomo. Um, I know we're already at uh, just over an hour, but I, I guess if we have a second, I did want to talk uh, just a little bit, don't dwell on it too much, but about what, if anything, Bernie could have done different, and more importantly, where we go from here, what we think things look like from here. Um, and, you know, I think it's a totally unknowable, unfalsifiable, unfalsifiable hypothesis as to what he could have done different, and I think people will... Uh, myself included, kind of insert their own pre-biases into that. Though I do think, like, in the context of running within a Democratic primary, perhaps uh, we should have run, he should have run more ads with, you know, voiceovers from Obama and talked about how, and he doesn't get enough credit for this, he was the only senator who voted to defend Obama's nuclear deal. So, you know, I mean, like, there is, maybe he should have made the argument more that I'm the heir to Obama. Uh, I think that's a possibility. Even with the Obama thing, though, like um, uh, I I got like a text from my Lib family from this thing. It completely flew under the radar of the left, but he ran an ad 
um, with Obama complimenting him, but a, a, some there was some CNN article about how it was like, well, actually, Obama was complimenting uh, Hillary in that ad, and maybe it was a fuck <laughs> up on the part of the Obama administration. Maybe it was um, a, a or not. I'm sorry. Maybe it was a fuck up on the part of you know Sanders media team. Maybe um, uh, it was CNN lying, um, but. Uh, I, and, you know, uh, Obama did actually campaign for Bernie in uh, 2006, but whatever the case there, it, I, I don't know how well that would have worked because even in the extent that he did do it, it apparently broke through to the uh, Democratic primary voters um, or it backfired for, you know, a bunch of liberal uh, Democratic primary voters. Well, I, I don't really know. And again, you know, this is all unfalsifiable. But one thing that we do see is that uh, white people without college educations, by and large, in 2016, voted for Bernie over Hillary, whereas in 2020, they, by and large, voted for Joe Biden over Bernie. And libs kind of make the argument, oh, they were just misogynist. They were just voting against Hillary Clinton or whatever. And I don't know how true that is. But, you know, perhaps... There is an argument that we already hashed out to death on the tough crowd that maybe some of the cultural signifiers uh, might have turned against Bernie in 2020 as opposed to 2016. Maybe his kind of focus on a more economic message in 2016 did that. There's no way of um, proving this. And, you know, people know from my Twitter and our discussions uh what I believe the left strategy should be, but I do think you do have to look at why Bernie lost white people without college educations, because I think people without college educations are necessarily the future of a working class movement of all races, but in the U.S., white people are the majority. To re uh, I think I already made this point during my Bernie postmortem, but... Uh... Yeah, to me, it was always, I'm like an ardent supporter of his, but it was always a bit confusing when he said, like, I want a political revolution. But then he also has this, like, collegial sort of relationship with the people who are supposed to be, like, the the standard bearers of the establishment that he's railing against, like Biden. So, like, I was always, that was always a bit confusing to me, even as, like, someone who's been with in in his camp the whole time. I wonder I think, if what you what you guys think of that. I think on that point, um, it's the thing there is that you can't expect the next Lenin to come out of the Senate. I think Bernie made it up to that level to do what change he could at that level. Um, but you're not going to get a real revolutionary who is in the Senate. And, um, you know, he, he did talk a lot about revolution, but you know, ultimately a lot of his reforms were, they would have been in some ways revolutionary because as we've talked about, you know, they, they would have definitely um, uh, undermined some of the backbones, some of the most pernicious um, backbones of the, some of the most pernicious elements of American capitalism. Um, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, you, you just can't go that far with someone who, who makes it through that environment. Um. Mm -hmm. yeah like I feel like he he took us like right up to just before the finish line and you know if we want if we really want to cross the finish line we need to find someone who's more radical basically 
Yeah. And I mean, I'm a believer that I think there are strategic choices that were made by the campaign that might have probably made a difference, like such as we saw after they launched all these Social Security ad attacks on Joe Biden, his numbers went down and then they kind of took the boot off the neck once they thought, you know, Pete Buttigieg was going to be the threat. So, you know, and this is all, um, you know, hindsight 2020 stuff. But I did want to say with uh, the argument that nothing could have been done here, the most convincing data point I saw was somebody shared it on Twitter. uh, Democrat versus Republican primary voters trust in the media. And what you saw is, you know, obviously Donald Trump voters have, uh, I believe it was most recently polled at less than 20 percent believe the media is honest and tells the truth, whereas Democratic primary voters is over 60 percent. And in fact, after Donald Trump won, you saw a big spike in trust in the media among Democratic primary voters where, you know, they think the media is holding Trump accountable. So, of course, the media is telling the truth. Well, if the media is spending all day trashing Bernie and the voters in your primary trust the media, like it's going to make a difference if they trust the media. But if they don't trust the media, it doesn't make a difference. So, I mean, that's to me the most compelling data point for the other side of the argument. Yeah, yeah I would I would say that is uh, another big indicator that like it it doesn't necessarily make sense to argue what he could or could have done differently when you have that confluence of forces working against him. And, you know, the, the, um, the trust in the media thing, that's obviously, uh, more of a, uh, coincidence than anything that, you know, you have a, a demagogue who's shitting on the media 24 seven, Um, and so a lot of people who associate themselves with his opposition party are going to, um, tend to trust the media more. And then even though that same media is ultimately on the same side as um, that candidate and that their interests line up more with Trump's than their own interests. Um, and so it's, I, I, I find it to be kind of a fool's errand to try to say like what he could have done differently for the next presidential run, because I don't, uh, I, I don't I don't think this is our way to power. I think we have to build up. Um, I think it was it was a very good shot that we had, and it, I'm glad that we took it. But I think um, I don't I don't think we're going to have another Bernie um, for you know generations to come, or at least for a generation. And in the meantime, instead of focusing on what he could have done differently, or what you know if he had just um, done this with his campaign or just you know reached out to these people in in a hypothetical sense i think we need to focus more on all right well you know what are the other ways that we build power how how are we going to do that uh what are the next steps um how do we take back unions from their like pmc leadership in a lot of cases um you know how how do we uh turn the labor movement into an actual political tool that we can use to um because I, I mean, another another side effect of the coronavirus is that, you know, the uh, suddenly with everyone being taken out of labor, the economy is collapsing. And so, if if you want to really, it, it, if you want something that's going to give people an idea of the value of their own labor, um, that that's one thing for certain. And I, I think that's um, in its own perverse way maybe going to help in that direction. But we have to, I think we have to um, stop focusing so much on this uh, uh semi-illusion of, of of getting socialism through 
um, just just this electoral pathway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Andy is right. We have to. There are ways in which we can build up a dual power using the movement from that Bernie created from nothing and just get handed to us basically like in just the last 10 days dsa has had 2,000 new members sign up um there are waves of worker strikes going on in the sectors of the economy that are still active so like i think it was workers that uh when i say gm striked until they the company agreed to start making like devote more resources to making ventilators things like that so like there's there's like seeds of worker militancy that can be built up without any electoral involvement whatsoever and then maybe links back into another candidate who shows promise in like the sort of maybe maybe like the bernie or aoc sort of thing in the future so there are ways you know it's not elections are just one small part of politics and the movement that we use to build up Bernie can be used to support other things, like more worker militancy and stuff. Well, yeah, and, you know, I, I want to agree with what uh, both Andy and Steve are saying there uh, regarding as terms of what is constructive that can be done from here, particularly the label, labor union movement and um, labor militancy is, is the most constructive path. And uh, hopefully we can talk about that for a quick minute. But I did want to share... One last thing regarding, you know, hypotheticals, uh, and this is a pet theory of mine I've shared on Twitter, but I want to clarify because maybe people think I'm trolling or doing a bit. I honestly believe that had Kamala Harris not apologized for agreeing with that voter who called Donald Trump retarded, she would be the Democratic nominee <laughs> right now. And I want to defend my thesis here, because I think something that we saw with Bernie Sanders, I don't know if he could have taken advantage of this the same way Donald Trump did, but something we saw with Bernie Sanders is before he was, you know, winning in Nevada and, uh, you know, New Hampshire, the media ignored him. They gave him no airplay whatsoever. Whereas with, with Donald Trump, you know, there have been studies that calculated that he got tens of millions of dollars worth of free ad buys because he would just say controversial shit so he would be on CNN all the time and they would literally play his entire rallies live. They would just play his campaign rallies, the entire thing, on hopes that he says something controversial. This is free advertising, tens of millions of dollars. So I do think something that Donald Trump did was hack the media outrage machine to buy tens of millions of dollars of free ads and I think there was space for Kamala Harris to uh, just like we should. I, I did want to just give it a quick bit of context here for those who don't remember, uh, just according to a CNN write up. It was a voter in New Hampshire. And I do just want to note this guy was actually originally uh, from uh, Chennai, India. Uh, he's a, a, an immigrant. It was an immigrant voter. So he wasn't trying to be an asshole. This is just, you know, the way normal people talks. He at, he's in New Hampshire. He asked Kamala a question he asks her somehow a racist bigot gets into the white house and then he says if you're not my color you need to go back to your own country uh, he spoke with a thick indian accent so i am scared for this country i'm scared for the people of color in this country uh, he asked in the next year what would you do to diminish the mentally retarded action of this guy and the audience in New Hampshire laughed, and Kamala said, well said, well said. And then there was a media firestorm, and she, of course, apologized. Uh, she said, you know, I never, I would have corrected him if I noticed him using that kind of language. And I think if she'd just been like, 
nah, you know what? Uh, people are passionate. I'm not here to lecture people. We're too politically correct. And just allow the media to get mad at her for three weeks or two weeks. You just get tons of free publicity. And whenever people get mad at you, you just pivot back to your talking points. And I think there there was a lane for a candidate to be kind of the establishment uh, Medicare for all candidate, which what what she was originally. But I think uh, she kind of undermined herself by walking away from a great free publicity opportunity. And I don't know if Bernie Sanders could have exploited this kind of media hack the same way. But uh, it is interesting to me that no candidate since Donald Trump has has seen all that free ad money lying on the table if you just call Trump retarded or, uh, you know, be controversial in whatever way you want to. And I think something like that maybe has a bit of diminishing returns. Maybe Kamala could have gotten away with it. I think she right now uh, is in a much better position to get elected president, not elected president, but become president. Um because she's, you know, uh, she's speculated to be one of uh, Biden's top picks for VP. And, mm. you, you you know, he's not going to make it through uh, first term if he does get elected. So um, I'd say maybe she has a one in five chance of being the president through that doorway. Mm. Well, she'll get a chance to correct her mistake. Like. I want to apologize for the voters for earlier saying that Donald Trump was not retarded. I have learned my lesson. He is, in fact, retarded. Though she did that, I'm willing to guess that a bunch of her PMC staffers would have just uh, quit to go over to Buttigieg's campaign or something. Like, Yeah, but they are, they are the people who sabotaged her. Like, she, she uh, during a debate, her got you on Elizabeth Warren was demanding that she sign a letter to Twitter to ban Donald Trump's Twitter account. Like, nobody but the richest people on earth give a shit about this. Like, Harris could have been the nominee. She just hired the stupidest people. She got, like, the fucking um, Harlem Globetrotters, of it, the Washington generals of idiotic political operators who just yeah, they fucked this up at every single opportunity. They weren't hanging out in the back of that debate with like an infrared laser dot on her head, making sure that she said the line like the buck stops with her for the shitty yes. campaign that she ran and the shitty, stupid attempts to go viral that she ran with at the debates. But in fairness, I did tweet at her multiple times saying that I would take over her campaign and double down on calling Trump retarded. So she knew an alternative was out there. I could have I could have brought her over the finish line. I think if de Blasio weren't such a fucking useless wet blanket, he might have been able to like uh, make that uh, take that tack and make it look convincing with his New Yorker credits. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Imagining Kamala Harris being like, Donald Trump is retarded. <laughs> it just uh, I love doesn't, it already. Do, doesn't seem to have a sustainable authenticity in the way uh, that Trump being uh, Trump does in the way that got him through the primary in general. But, yeah, but ha like Harris doing it is like such a combo breaker for the media. So like they, I mean, yeah, you know, this is a, like a white guy in New Yorker calling someone retarded. Everyone is already expecting that, and the media would just immediately shit on them. But Harris, uh, you know, because of her background, like she can, uh, I think they just wouldn't know what to do with that, and they would just be like, sort of like 
weirdly interested and give her free airtime, but like it would be sort of like not necessarily a negative thing. So I guess I sort of, I guess I sort of, I guess I sort of agree yeah. with Sean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, just Andy saying it in that accent actually made me go from hard commit to Bernie to just lean Bernie. So I, I think this actually could have sold me over to her camp. Um, but but Yogi, did you have any thoughts on like? I guess, Bernie, all this campaign, how are you feeling? Because, you know, obviously we, we kind of knew this was coming, but uh, it's been a fucking bummer because a lot of vulnerable people are going to get hurt because we don't have the levers of power in the federal government. And, you know, this is the absolute worst fucking time to have the uh, the status quo in power. Um, yeah, so how are, how are you feeling, buddy? I just think that, the radicalization of people in this country that has not happened under the Sanders 2020 campaign or the Warren 2020 campaign that is people being like, hey, uh, I'm not I'm not lying when I say this, but if you don't come in line, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. I really think that is kind of where people are going to go soon, because it seems like the Trump army has got more enthusiasm and just blind trust than anyone else's campaign. And I don't think anybody that wasn't a Biden fan isn't defeated by Biden being the nominee right now. And there's that quote I've posted on our uh, Instagram for our Grubstakers about this like professor at, I think it's Harvard, talking about why people in the UK stop believing in the royalty and the person uh, that's being quoted is like saying that she was like writing down notes because she was in this class. And the teacher said they just stopped believing that this was the way shit was supposed to happen. And in this country, this idea that A, elections are run correctly and fairly. B, that money is somehow as finite as the clean water and air that we try and uh, put in our bodies. To the fact that any of this shit is supposed to run correctly uh, my favorite phrase being that the system isn't broken, it's fixed uh, for those that are in power and that the elite and the elites. So, I mean, honestly, I think at this point, when it comes to Sanders and him dropping out, it's been a bummer. But it also has just been a reminder of like, you got to you got to mobilize. How many people do you know? Connect them to the other people, you know, because as it stands, I mean, even as something as small as our leftist podcast we're not really connected to the other people doing podcasts in Brooklyn in a way where we have communication with one another one-on-one -on -one about what we think of the world tomorrow. And it's like, it's the ultimate Voltron, you know, to stronger in numbers type of thing. It's not even that hard to comprehend. And the fact that on such a small scale in this country, we are failing at that time and time again is indicative of why these ideas that are mostly universal, as we've seen from this election are being rejected wholeheartedly. It's frustrating. But at the same time, I think that in the same way that the 20s of the last century were indicative to how the rest of the century played out, I think we're in a similar moment right now. Hmm. By the way, I'm uh, reporting from uh, uh, the coronavirus stats helicopter right now, and it looks like uh, with the final numbers counted for... Uh, the United States on April 10th, we have officially crossed the 2,000 deaths line in uh, daily coronavirus deaths with 2,035 for April 10th reporting in. Wow. Wow. Dude. Dude. Dude.
So I was wrong saying that it was going to be a 9-11 per day. It's just two-thirds of a 9-11 per day. Well, that's a great success for the Trump administration. Nobody could have done it better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I I guess I kind of wanted to just close this episode by each of us talk about where we go from here. Because I think, you know, it's easy to give into despair, but I think we have an obligation not to. You know, like, uh, we're not the people who will... two-thirds of a 9-11 per day. We're not the people who will be most impacted by this going wrong. If you have the option to just tune out and play video games, like you're not the person who's going to feel the biggest impact of this. And I I think as altruistic people, as, you know, uh, people who care about the world around you, everybody has an obligation if they are in that situation to try and and make that world better for the the most vulnerable people. And and in terms of where we go from here, I, I think what we were saying about the labor movement earlier, where you do have like an AFL-CIO, uh, the labor union, the uh, Trumpka is going to be up for election, the president of that union. He's a total boomer sellout. Maybe you can throw him out, get some actual radicals in there. There's a lot. There are going to be union elections where we can make the union movement as it exists in the U.S. more militant, hopefully, in the years to come. Yeah, I think... Sarah Nelson, the flight attendant's union president, I, I think she's trying to run. So for, for AFL-CIO, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean that's an improvement. I didn't like her hedging on Warren versus Sanders, yeah. but again, compared to Trumpka. Yeah. And, and yeah, and just what we were talking about with like Amazon and uh, you know uh, Instacart and these other strikes because of coronavirus. I, I did post a thread about this on um, on Twitter, and I got some replies from a guy named Rust Belt at Rust Belt Jacobin, uh, and he said that he was actually assault. You know, assault is a guy who joins a company or a guy or girl joins a company or uh, nice whatever. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, assault is a person who joins a company uh, to try and make that company's workforce unionized and so he salted an amazon warehouse in delaware in 2000 and he just kind of talked about that where uh unionizing the logistical chains in this country is a project that's been ongoing and that's very difficult because uh, and we have talked about this a bit on this podcast companies like walmart and amazon as they move into such monopolistic territory are built to resist unionization. If one plant or one location unionizes, they will shut it down and fire everybody and just reroute that supply chain. So it is very difficult to unionize these places. But he says, you know, there's, uh, there is hope in healthcare, in, um, you know, franchises like McDonald's and these sorts of things. And Teachers you know, also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You saw a lot of wildcat strikes with regards to teachers. And with coronavirus and a Great Depression situation, this stuff could change. So I think the left has to just be in a position where we're willing, those of us who can afford it, to contribute to strike funds. And, you know, if workers at Amazon go on strike, you have to cancel your fucking Prime account. You can't be putting yourself first on this stuff. You have to say, we have an obligation to support unionization wherever it appears, because in terms of real power, the only way we're going to get that is having a militant labor union. And I I guess one last thing is Chomsky always talks about the low point of American labor was the 1920s, which leads into the Great Depression, the 1930s, the high point of American labor. So, you know, it's easy to get dejected, but things can change. 
in an instant. So just look for the green shoots where they are and keep your eye on the labor movement is what I would say for going forward. Cool. And with that, this has been Grub Stakers. I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourself and your neighbors. Good night. All right. Stop your recorders. Sean, which neighbors were you talking about? The Connecticut ones or the New York ones? (laughs)